Good morning, I'm Pastor Ransom. So thankful that you're all here. Uh, we are continuing in our new sermon series, Real Christians. We're walking through the Sermon on the Mount this fall. And so we'll be studying this morning Matthew 5, 7 through 9. You can turn there in your Bibles. Matthew 5, 7 through 9. And uh, just for context, I'm going to go ahead and read this morning from the English Standard Version, verses 1 through 9. So again, Matthew 5, I'll start reading in verse 1. Seeing the, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture, for all of Scripture. You change us, you teach us, you challenge us. I pray this morning, Father, that there is no difference, that the Spirit is active in our hearts, that our ears are open, that our wills are compliant to what you have for us. I pray, God, for this people and those listening via the internet, Lord, that we would be challenged this morning, myself included. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in seminary, um, I was thinking about you this morning, Aaron. Aaron teaches preaching at the chaplain school here at Fort Jackson. And I was thinking when they teach you about preaching in seminary, they say when you start your sermon, make sure you do something exciting, grab their attention, let them know why they ought to listen. And so this morning we're going to start with some review. Woohoo! All right. I know nothing is more grabbing than review. Okay. Uh, what is blessedness? We're in the, this, the Beatitudes. The Beatitude means to be blessed, right? What is blessedness? Remember, it's not emotional happiness. It's not the feeling of being happy. It's not, uh, it's not receiving material goods. That's something we often think about the word blessing here in America. Is, oh, what a blessing. I got a raise at work, or I got a good tax return. Or, and we, kind of, we think blessing is attached to the things we have and the experience and the comfort we have now. No, it's not those things. Nor are the Beatitudes a formula to attain happiness. They're not, it's not, hey, if you do this, then you'll get blessing. That's not what it is at all. We have to recognize that. And so, in fact, blessedness is not something you pursue. It's the result of pursuing something else. So when we look at these phrases, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is it? What is the blessedness? It's a term of congratulation of something already bestowed. So when you read these, you have to read, Christian, follower of Christ, you are already blessed. You are already blessed. And then you are blessed when you do this thing. It's kind of the middle part, all right? And you are blessed when you do that thing because of this, this promise that is true no matter what you do. And so we are the recipients as of right now, if we are followers of Christ, of distinctive joy. And it's a result of what? Being a follower of Christ. And so what we learned from the first four Beatitudes last week is that um, they revealed this 
actual blessedness that comes from the gospel truth in our lives. So what are they? We need God is what they're saying. The first four Beatitudes are saying, you need God. I was thinking about this idea of how much we need God and we need Him 100%. Uh, I've, I've had coaches in my past say, team, we need 110%. And I always thought, as soon as they said that, you realize that's not a thing, right? That's not actually possible. But if we could need 110%, we would need God 110%. We need Him all the way. We need God's grace to even be in the kingdom of God. We need God's comfort and forgiveness because our sins are great. We need need God's promises in order to to keep us humble and to show us our position. We need God's righteousness. We have none of our own. And what do the first four Beatitudes say? You are blessed when you realize those things because guess what? God provides them. That's the message there. There's a slight shift in these next three Beatitudes. Jesus is still declaring promises to his disciples. He's still saying, if you are a follower, here's what is true about you. But the slight shift is those middle part of the formula. You are blessed already, follower, when you do these things because of these promises. These three middle things are descriptions of of, uh, the side effect actions in the lives of followers of Christ. When we realize who Jesus is, when we follow Jesus Christ, we are called into action. And there's some actions here this morning. So let's jump right in. Verse 7 is where we're starting our study. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Before we talk about what it means to be merciful, we have to talk about what mercy is. What is mercy? So, two kind of conjoined terms you see in the Bible, grace and mercy. They go together. They go together. Grace and mercy. What is grace? Grace is the receipt of something, even when you don't deserve it. Especially when you don't deserve it. So God's love for us is what? Grace. We've received it. We didn't earn it. It's not something we paid for. It's something God bestows upon us even though we don't deserve it. You see, grace. Mercy is kind of the opposite. It's, it's not receiving what you do deserve. Not receiving what you do deserve. What do we deserve? What do all humans deserve? We deserve separation, punishment, abandonment from God. But instead of that... God is to His people graciously faithful. He gives His faithfulness even when we don't deserve it. You see? That's mercy. And so, even though every human on the planet deserves punishment, separation, and abandonment, God has elected not to give everyone what they deserve. And those people are His people. So when it talks about being merciful, what is it talking about? It's talking about, and this is a great simple definition that I read this week, to be merciful means to relate to others with a forgiving and compassionate spirit. To relate to others with a forgiving and compassionate spirit. So again, let's recall the formula. You are already blessed when you do this thing because of this promise, because of this truth. And so here we have, listen, this is not reading as if you have to be merciful or else God will not show you mercy. That's not how it's reading here. We have to understand that. You're not on the hook. Well, you better show mercy or it's coming your way. That's not how it reads. It's a side effect. What is our mercifulness? It's a side effect of a free gift and a future promise. We'll talk about that next. 
And so if we reverse this, if we get this wrong, what's the danger? We, we descend into bootstrap Christianity. You understand what I'm saying? I better get it done or God's going to smite me. And that is not the gospel. That's not the gospel. So when it says to be merciful, it says here, uh, blessed are the merciful. You are already blessed when you have a forgiving and compassionate spirit towards others. Why? What's the because? What's the promise? The second part of verse 7. For they shall receive Mercy, it's future tense. Let's talk about receiving mercy. Let's talk about that. What is the truth about us, church? What's the truth about us? What's the truth about me? What's the truth about anyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ? What's the truth? We deserve punishment for our sins. We deserve it. That's the truth. We deserve it. What Everything we have done, everything we will do, deserves a payment. The wages of sin is death. We're not better than other people. We're the same. All humans are the same. We deserve punishment. However, rather than getting what we deserve, what has God done? He's dealt mercifully with us. He's dealt mercifully. He's had mercy on us. I will relent what you deserve. I will not show it. If you have your Bibles there, you can either write this passage down, check it out later, 1 Peter 3 through 5 really explains this well. Listen to this. 1 Peter 1, 3 through I'm not going to read two chapters of the Bible, just so you know. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What? According to his great mercy. How has he showed us mercy? Listen to what it says. He has caused us, past tense, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what do we get in the future? In to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Past, present, future mercy. That's what's listed there. He, through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, you received mercy. Now, by being born again, brought into the kingdom, through the salvation you've experienced, you have been shown mercy. In the future, there's an inheritance waiting for you, guarded by God. Mercy for you. Thinking about what it means to be merciful in relation to this great thing that God has done for us. So in a sense, why should we be merciful? Why are we merciful? Because we have been shown great mercy. Immediately my mind was drawn to Matthew 18. A great story by Jesus. The unmerciful servant. This is exciting stuff. You ready? So there's, this, there's a story that Jesus tells, and he says this. There's this servant who owes the king 10,000 talents. That's $6 billion by today's measurement. $6 billion. He really messed up somewhere. He kept borrowing and borrowing. Maybe a gambling problem. We don't know. All right? 10,000 talents. And so he comes to the king, and what does he say? I... Uh, uh, that's what he says. He just groaned. I don't know. Lord, I, I can't pay it. I'll never be able to pay it. I can't work it off. Please have mercy. And what does the king do? The king says, listen, I forgive that. Six billion dollars that you owe me is forgiven. I'm not going to send you to prison. I just want you to go out. You are forgiven. The king had mercy on this obviously awful financial person, right? He couldn't handle it, right? So he owed so much. And yet, what did the king do? He forgave him and sent him out. This is where the story gets juicy, all right? So he's leaving the palace, and he sees a fellow servant, and that servant owes him 
a certain amount of ancient money, but that certain amount is probably about $12,000. Now, think about this. Jesus didn't make this $10. He made it a good, sizable amount of money. Twelve, if anyone owed us $12,000, I think most of us would be like, man, that hurts. I'm, I'm, that's a lot of money. And so this servant owes him a sizable amount of money, but considering what he owed the king, it's basically nothing. And so what happens? He sees this servant, and he, he comes up to him, and he throttles the guy. He throttles him. You owe me $12,000. And so what does he do? He throws He has the servant who owes him money thrown into prison until he can pay the whole debt. The king hears about this, and he calls the servant back, and he says in Matthew 18, 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's the nugget. That's it right there. Why should the servant have showed mercy? Because the guy didn't owe him money? No, because he had been showed mercy great mercy. He received the mercy. He was supposed to show the mercy after that. And so what happened? The king reinstated his debt. He threw him into jail until he could repay. Guess when that was? Never. So what's the teaching moment? Jesus is saying to his, the listeners, remember God's mercy on you and then show that mercy to others. He's not saying, if you do that, then God won't do it. God already showed mercy. You see, the king already had shown mercy. It was in the possession of the servant. We are in possession of God's mercy even now. And so what should our response be to show that same mercy forward, to have a forgiving and compassionate spirit? One thing that is interesting to me about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus balancing grace and law. He's not throwing the law out completely. He's not saying forget about all that. He's showing us what, it, what the law is intended for. And this is one of those moments. Uh, are, is it okay for Christians, for those who say they follow Christ, to show no mercy? Think about this. Is that okay? Is it optional? No. It's not optional. Because we have been given mercy, we are obligated. We have the opportunity is a better way to say it. We have uh, we have the, uh, the, the, the ability to show mercy like no one else in the world. Why? Because we have received mercy for what? Our whole debt to God has been forgiven. Every last red cent. Because we have been shown great mercy, we have a great gospel motiva- motivator for the hard work of a forgiving and compassionate lifestyle. Think about the world. The world has lots of problems right now. Can I get an amen, right? The world has lots of problems. And what are they missing in all of it? Mercy. What's the message of anyone who feels wrong? Pay up, buttercup. Pay up. You owe me. We are in proximity to Christ. And because we are in proximity to Christ, we are already blessed We are already blessed. Why? Because He has given us mercy now and we have this hope in the future that we will receive unfiltered mercy for eternity later. And that is true. And that informs us and it gives us the ability and the motivation to be merciful to others. And so, you see, there's there's a call to action here. 
Blessed are the merciful. We're called to do this. We don't do this perfectly, but it's a call of a disciple to do that. And there's a good reason, for we shall receive mercy. We move to the next beatitude, verse 8. So we are called, because of God's mercy, to be merciful. In verse 8, we see that we are called to be pure in heart. Let's talk about this. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To put us in context of first century Jews who are sitting there listening to Jesus teach, we have to understand how, what they heard when they heard the word purity. All right? When they heard the word purity. If they go back to Old Testament purity. In the Old Testament, uh, purity uh, was certainly moral cleanness, a free from adulteration. Isn't that fun? A fun little uh, definition. But that came in a physical manifestation. So if you read through the Old Testament law, there's a lot of washings. There's a lot of ceremonial things that... That are, that are meant toward, towards symbolizing and showing outward physical cleanliness, purity. And so before you could go into the temple to do certain sacrifices, you had to wash and purify your outward body. If you had certain skin diseases, you had to wait until that passed until you could go in. There was this physical outward manifestation of purity. And so washing, cleansing, you did that in order to what? Be close to God. The idea that purity and God were synonymous. And so here, Jesus is not talking about ritualistic cleansing. He's not talking about that. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, a regular feature of the Sermon on the Mount is He is moving past physical cleanliness. He's moving past the letter of the law is one way to say it. And in fact, you go later in Matthew, Matthew 23, he's, he's giving woes to the Pharisees. And what is His criticism of them? You are as if you are whitewashed tombs. What does that mean? It means on the outside you're sparkling clean, but on the inside you're nothing but a corpse. Death and bones and stench. He's saying on the outside you look great. On the inside your heart is rotten. Your heart is rotten. And so Jesus here, this is one of the times that He is approaching a heart focus. Where does real purity come from? Not by acting the right way, but by having your heart renewed. Matthew 15, Jesus is putting this teaching into practice. His disciples are eating and they did not wash their hands. Uh-oh. In the COVID era, they would have been eaten alive, right? But also in the Pharisaical era. So look at this. The Pharisees really are, are upset about this. They're like, your, your disciples aren't washing their hands. They're violating the law. And here's what Jesus says in response. Do you see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I think we all know what that means. But... What comes out of the mouth proceeds from where? The heart. And, it, and this defiles a person. Jesus is redefining defilement for the Pharisees. He's saying it's not the outward thing. It's not about washing your hands or doing the right thing. It's about your heart. And he goes on. He says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus is not rejecting the law. He's trying to help everyone understand the, the actual meaning of the law. God's call to purity for the Israelites was to draw attention to the fact that they could never wash enough to wash their own heart. To have a pure heart. And so, what was that supposed to do? Drive them to God. The question then that I ask myself as I see here, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Does this mean we have to be perfect? Is that what this is talking about? 
Blessed are those who never mess up, who never sin. Here's a good interpretive principle. When you're reading Scripture and you come to something that doesn't quite make sense, Scripture interprets Scripture. So you should always use the harder things, the things that don't make as much sense. You should use excuse me, the things that make more sense to interpret the things that don't make as much sense. The Bible supports itself. So when you come to something and you're unsure, you must go to other places in the Bible. So let's go to 1 Peter 1. This is talking about purity of heart. Purity of heart. Here's what Peter has to say. So listen to these, these verbs here. These words. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So what is one way that we purify our hearts? Through obedience. Having purified. You did that in the past by obedience. It's an action that purifies. He goes on. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. Listen, there's two things going on here. Yes, as we obey, it purifies our heart. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the only reason we can do that is because we have been given a pure heart. Okay? We've been given one by Christ. It says here, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. What is the, the being born again about? It's about being born again here. When, when Christ brings us back to life because by His grace, when He revives us, what does He do? He takes out that old, nasty heart that the only thing it can do is rebel against God. And inside there, He places a new one. A new one that has the ability to follow Christ that has the ability to see Christ and have faith in Christ, to obey and, and, and learn from the Word. So yes, we are called to, to obey. And by obeying, what's going to happen? We will increase our purity, our holiness. However, are we perfect? No, by no means are we perfect. We fall short daily, hourly. But what should we do? Obey the Word. This is referring here to sanctification. That's a big, big word that means as we live our life, as we partake in the grace that God gives us, He gives us lots of different ways to partake in that, mainly reading the Word and praying. Those are the two main ways that, that we are sanctified. We are washed by God's grace, and as we are washed by God's grace, we become more and more pure. The, the image that I use, and some of you heard me use this, is a dirty paintbrush. When you wash a brush, the clean water runs through it, and what comes out of it? Dirty, nasty paint water. But the more water that runs through it, what happens? That the water coming out of the brush gets more and more and more clear. This is the image of our sanctification. We are dirty paintbrushes. You're welcome for that. We're, we're dirty paintbrushes. And as God's grace flows through us, the thing coming out of us is certainly tainted with paint, but it is growing more and more clear by the day as we partake in the ways that God gives us grace. This is this whole learn, affirm, obey cycle that we talk about often here at Grace. What is the way to maturity? What is the way to know Christ more? What is the way to become more like Him? We learn from the Bible. We affirm that it's true. And we pray for obedience. And we follow what the Bible says. So, we are already blessed when we pursue holiness, why? What's the promise? What's the because? It says in the ending of verse 8, they shall see God. I love this. This word here, 
uh, it has to do with the eye, but the meaning, the way it was used, is more than just seeing. This is more than seeing your neighbor and saying, hey, neighbor, and going to the house or whatever. Uh, you saw them, certainly. This is different than that. This word means to experience in full. Isn't that cool? To experience in full. This is more than just seeing God from afar. Hey, God, this is being enveloped by God and actually experiencing the presence of God himself. So think about this. Blessed are you when you pursue holiness. Why? Because you will for eternity experience God. Sanctification is tied to our experience of God for eternity. This is powerful. Some way, somehow, as God makes us more like Christ now through suffering and difficulty and sin, this is preparing us to have a full-on, unfiltered God experience for eternity. It's preparing us for it. And so the question I've had asked many times uh, is, why doesn't God just save us and take us home to, to glory right after? Why doesn't that happen? There's two reasons. First of all, he has set forth a way of spreading his word. And guess what? It involves us. Those who have been found by Christ are those who will find others in Christ. We have a mission to be sharing about this thing, this mercy we have received. And so that's the first reason. He doesn't take us out of this world because we have a mission to do. He's chosen us to share his word and spread the truth of the gospel. The second thing is this. Our suffering, our sanctification, they're meant to prepare us for eternity with God in some way. This is mysterious, folks. When we go through hard times, we think, how could this possibly? But there's something about that suffering. There's something about that sanctification. There's something about that pursuit of holiness that, that gets us ready for this unimaginable, glorifying, great thing we have where we experience God in person for eternity. You see, we are blessed already, church, because we will see Him because we will see him, what can we do? We can abandon the wares of this world and pursue holiness instead. We have a promise to hold on to that motivates us for that, that allows us to do that. So blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Thirdly, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God of God. Peacemakers. So this word, peacemakers, is only used one time in the entire New Testament, right here. This is the only time this particular word is used. It makes it hard to really narrow down to a specific definition. Um, but the idea here is the root word is the opposite of war. So when war ends, this is the word that's used. And so peacemaker is someone who makes the end of conflict. Very general thing. What kind of conflict? Conflict, period. General. Uh, most commentators believe that it's good for us and general on purpose because uh, we are not, if we were called to a specific kind of peacemaking, maybe we'd forget about all the peace that needs to be made in the world. So we are called to general peacemaking in the world. Listen to the notes from the Christian Standard Bible Study Notes. The ministry of peacemaking invo involves, and I'll go slowly here, resolving conflict by making prompt apologies, acts of restitution, refusing to seek revenge, and humbly serving and loving one's enemies. So, peacemaking involves resolving conflict by making prompt apologies, 
and acts of restitution, refusing to seek revenge, and humbly serving and loving one's enemies. What's great is if you look at all those things, that, that encompasses anger and retaliation and loving your enemies, and Jesus will, and later in Matthew 5, go through all of these scenarios. And so he later will go through these in, in sermons, describe what it means to be a peacemaker in all these different areas. If we look at 2 Corinthians 5, Paul can, can give us even some more specificity here. Paul really latches onto this idea of peacemaking in, in 2 Corinthians, and he says this, all this is from God. Listen to these words. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. So we have been reconciled to Christ, and now we are sent out as reconcilers. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting us to us, the message of reconciliation. The very next verse says, for we are ambassadors for Christ. And what is the message that we bring? We come in peace, okay? And people look at us like we're aliens sometimes, because we kind of are. We're aliens. We don't belong in this world. We are now, I'm not saying we're actual aliens. This is not a weird space cult you happen to walk into this morning. No, what I mean is we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. We are citizens there, not here. And so when we come with our message of peace, peace with Christ, some people think it's odd. Some people don't want it. But Jesus is the ultimate reconciler. D.A. Carson says Jesus is the supreme peacemaker. He made peace between God and man and the only way that there can be peace between man and man is Jesus Christ. The only way there can be peace. What is ultimate reconciliation? What is ultimate peace? It is being reconciled to God through Christ and being reconciled to one another through what? Jesus Christ. There's only one way. No reconciliation, but that which is accomplished through Jesus Christ is actual reconciliation. Easy peace is not reconciliation. In fact, man-made peace, think about this, man-made peace has no structural integrity. It does not last. It is not peace unless it involves Jesus Christ. You see the urgency with which this motivates us to share Jesus. We hate what's going on in the world. If we hate the problems that we see, we have the answer. And it is Jesus Christ alone. The promise at the end of this, we are blessed while we make peace. We are free to make peace. We're the harbingers of peace for this promise, for they shall be called the sons of God. In the future, even now, we are called the children of God. Listen to John 1. John is making a case at the very beginning of his book. He's trying to convince people to believe in Jesus, and here's what he says about Jesus. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to what? Become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How do we become children of God? By the will of God. We are adopted as sons and daughters of the king. This is not a sterile business transaction. God chooses us out of this world to what? Become his very child. We become his children. It's intimate. We're part of the family. One of my personal struggles, take a big drink of water to let you uh, uh, wait on that. 
the tension builds. Listen, one of my personal struggles is that when I interact with God, I tend to be very formal. I just tend to be formal. So what does this look like? When I pray, in, in my normal habits, I say, dear Lord, and I maybe curtsy a little bit, right? Okay, very formal. Dear Lord. Thank you, Joey. What's up, dude? Um, when I pray, I say, dear Lord. When I, when I read the Bible, I call it seminary brain. I don't let it speak to me. I affirm and I agree. Yes, that's a fact. Yes, that's right. Yes, that's fact. Burp, 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 right? It's very formal. It can be sterile. That's my struggle. And so I have to continually remind myself of my sonship. I'm a son with a loving father, not a formal, sterile God. When I, when I come to God, He's not disappointed in me. He's not, he's not distant from me. He hugs me. He loves me. He wants me there. And if we can wrap our minds around this idea that we are sons and daughters of God, think about how powerful this is. God doesn't just tolerate us. Great. Ransom again. No. He loves us. He wants to be around us. God doesn't just teach us and then send us on our way. No, He abides with us and helps us change. And He wants to see it take root in our lives. God doesn't just punish us or rub our nose in our sin. No, He, he disciplines us as a loving Father so that what we might be more like Him. He doesn't, he doesn't just show us our sin to make us feel bad. No, He's attentive enough to us to show us what is inhibiting our intimacy with Him. He wants us to be closer. And what gets in the way? Me. <laughs> My heart. And so, when I forget these things, when I forget that I am God's Son, I forget who I really am. And I start acting like someone else. Like God isn't my Father. Like He's a business partner in ministry. And that brings me to this idea, like what, what can be said about these? It's not a list of laws. It's not a to-do list. It's not that at all. Be merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. It's not something, oh, okay, let's get to it. No, what is it? As we, as a Christian, what is the Christian life? Here's how I'm going to say this. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is exploring who we really are. That's what the Christian life is. It's not a bunch of do's and don'ts or things we should do. No, the Christian life is realizing I'm the son of the king and I'm going to explore what that means. Who am I really? And so showing mercy and pursuing holiness and making peace, where does that take place? It takes place when we explore the truth of who we already are and what God has already done for us. Mercy, I think, is the easiest one to understand. How can I be merciful? Well, you remember what God has already done. He's had mega $6 billion mercy on me. And so I can show that same mercy for lesser things that others need to be forgiven of. I can have compassion on the sins of others. How? Because I have been shown mercy. Think about this. Let's go back to the beginning of the Beatitudes. We recognize our poverty, our, our bankruptcy. I, I am spiritually broke. I have nothing to offer God. And we mourn over that. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And we come to God humbly. And what does He do? He forgives. 
And we seek, we come and say, listen, God, I have no way to be right before you. I have no righteousness of my own. And what does he do? He doesn't just throw us out like we deserve. We deserve that. Get. Here's what we deserve. We deserve that. Get. Scram. You You shouldn't be here. But what does he do instead? We come in faith in the name of Jesus and God shows mercy. That's the first thing. See the progression here. God shows mercy. What we do deserve, He doesn't give. Now, He doesn't show mercy and then again, shoo us away. Instead, the next thing is He wraps us in His presence. Come and experience Me. It's not just, okay, we're good, you and me, we're cool. He says, no, I want you to experience Me for eternity. And it doesn't end there. Isn't that incredible? It ends with, He adopts us as His very own children. Church, this is our now. This is our not yet. So we have this obscured view of this now. We, we experience this in, in broken ways now. We see little, little shining markers of it here and there. But at the end of time, what is promised? This future, unfiltered, we get that. All of that. It's promised and secured by the work of Jesus Christ. Not something that we do. How can we not recognize that as our already blessedness? We're blessed by that. That truth can give us distinctive joy simply by being in proximity to Jesus Christ. So these realities that we've talked about today, they're true of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And so, church, here's our story. We are children of a merciful, present, active, and loving Father. That's our truth. That's who we are already. And in that context, there's no other context, we find motivation, the ability, the opportunity, the privilege to be merciful, obedient peacemakers. Let me pray for us. Lord, I fail at these things readily. I don't show compassion. I am not forgiving. I don't pursue holiness. I'm not a peacemaker. And and what's the problem there? The, The problem is I forget who I am. I forget what you've done. Thank you for the Scriptures. Thank you for abiding with me, changing me, reminding me, disciplining me, steering me back towards you and your loving arms. You have given us mercy. You, through Jesus Christ, open yourself up to us that we might experience you even here in this broken world. You call us even now sons and daughters of God. You invite us here in a moment to your table to eat as a family. You do not give up on us. You do not let us sit on an island by ourselves. No, you, you approach. You follow. You pursue. And Lord, I pray for all of us this morning that we would remember our mercy. We'd remember the experiences we've had of you and your grace and your love and your power. We'd remember that we are called sons and daughters. And Lord, from that, as we explore who we really are, that we would become more merciful. It would be 
those who pursue holiness. Because we don't need this world. We don't need the things that are here. We only need you. And Father, I pray that we become peacemakers. More so and more so. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the bread and the cup that we're about to partake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.